0: I think that we all create these boundaries in our heads thinking, you know, I can solve the problem that someone else defines for me. uh, And then I can only work with this because this is my background. And then that cracked through with me with the military service where it's like, okay, okay, okay. I can solve problems that I don't think I can solve. Interesting. And then suddenly I moved to the next level, which was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can be part of defining the problem.
1: Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories a podcast making creators, entrepreneurs and idealists in the deep tech space accessible by highlighting their stories and pulling their ideas from the lab into the real world. My name is Philipp Stürmer and with me today is Hambus Jakobson, general partner at Climate Fund Pale Blue Dot and investor of the year 2019. This is the first part of how we started his own fund after already working as a VC after being an angel investor after selling his startup to Blackberry. The climate crisis is one of the most urgent challenges we face today. And while there are many different things one can do as an individual, it is easy to get overwhelmed with the sheer scale of it. Hampus, like many of us, felt that way when he was working as a venture capitalist after selling his company to Blackberry. But instead of letting it paralyze him he turned his concern into action. He decided to focus his life on combating climate change by starting his own climate tech fund and elevating and enabling the people that have the ideas to solve the problem. During this interview you will very quickly notice two things about Hampus. Firstly he's extremely energetic and extrovert while I'm more on the introverted side, which leads to him basically interviewing himself. Secondly, Ambus is a deeply curious person about anything he comes across, which is also what motivates and drives him and
0: starts during mandatory Swedish military service. I got to the military service. I think it was one of the first big, quote unquote, disruptions of my life. I think that When you change everything, when you change where you are and who you're with and what you're doing, you have a chance and a possibility to kind of change your identity partly. And I think that it was very interesting for me because before, it was always one step forward and like venturing out further to where I was constantly one step um, in my normal life. And I grew up in a family where computers and STEM and mathematics completely permeated. Mm -hmm. My dad is in physics, my mom was in genetics, my two older brothers are in mathematics and I think that obviously computers today, they permit everything. So I think that there was in my family, in my house, we had plenty of computers and it was always a conversation of how you used computers for stuff mm-hmm. to the degree that my mom always used to say that we were not allowed to talk about computers around the kitchen table. That meant that for me, computers were a very natural part of the world where it wasn't a very natural part of the world for most people. Yeah. But so like when I, was, when I was in upper high school, I did a lot of programming and really enjoyed it. Uh, but then I got the opportunity uh, when I was drafted to be asked if I wanted to do development for the military. And it was very strange because in a sense, I wasn't like trained or anything to do it. It was just like, it was a hobby. I'd done it a lot. But of course, the rarity of people no. that had done it and actually enjoyed it and yeah, had enough of, of craftsmanship around it were very rare As at the same time that they were um, driven and ambitious and collaborate. And I think that the strange thing is that what then happened is when the capitalistic system came in in like 97, 98, 99 with like the IT boom is that all of the talent were kind of souped up and asked to do kind of crazy different things, right? So like mm-hmm. a lot of things happened thanks to that. And actually in Sweden, uh, Sweden had this uh, home computers uh, kind of subsidy where like if you bought a computer to your household, you got a huge subsidy. And that created a whole wave in Sweden of yep. people that started using computers. Anyway, so when I got to the military... Uh, most of the military equipment built up until then, I think, like we were working with one of the first systems that were quote unquote digital, and mm-hmm. that was a system that was unintegratable and had no kind of quote unquote APIs or anything. It was very super proprietary, of course. But the so one of the headaches we were faced to solve were all of the old equipment, all yeah. radar stations and anything, are analog. An analog system is a system that doesn't really have a circuit board that you can connect to and ask for information. Yep. Like it has electrical currents. So we built a system that first read out electrical currents from a radar station and turn it into digital and then send it over TCP IP. So over, quote unquote, internet protocol no. to a computer, which meant that we could read out all the information of all radar stations that we connected to, which were all radar stations in Sweden. And so we digitalized the whole radar network in Sweden. And the funny thing about that is that I didn't even understand when I started. It's so easy when you come from a world, uh, uh, like when you're young, honestly that you just think that most things are better. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people find it when they start working their first job, whatever they start, they just realize that, okay, shit, I thought that everything was like more technologically or easier or better or whatever. And they come in there as shit, this is really like not very well made. Yeah. But so when I came there, it was really crazy because I didn't know that when most radar stations in the world, what they do is that you have people sitting in a radar station and it's just like the classical like, like the the line circling. It's like ding Mm being like submarine kind of movies, and you see a dot on that radar and it moves around and that's an airplane. And what happens is that people sit on the phone with a wired analog phone and they talk to each other and they say, I see a dot in this angle, da, 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 and my position is X, Y, Z. And then they call that in to a a room where people are sitting with physical rulers and dots on a map and they draw lines to figure out where these airplanes are. And then they call the people with cannons and they say, you should point your cannon this direction. And two things really disrupted the use of that in the Second World War or something. First of all, you had very fast planes. So the human times were like very tight. You had very, very little time to act. And the second thing is you had stealth planes. And we, when we all think about stealth planes, we think about planes that radars can't see. But there's another kind of stealth plane. And um, a radar station works like a bat. It sort of shouts out and the thing bounces back. back. It just constantly screams. So what happens if the bat then shouts, if the radar station shouts out and it looks at the signal coming back, they see, a, a, instead of seeing a dot on the map, you get a line. So like you as a radar station suddenly just get, in this, like 33 degrees north, somewhere in that direction as an airplane. Yeah. And that's completely useless, of course, because that direction is infinitely long and you have no idea if it's 100 meters from you or 100 miles from you. Yeah. And so one of the biggest problems happening around then was then that the radar station operators called each other and they did this with rulers and they kind of triangulated out where the plane was. But the problem is now what you do with a fast-moving plane. So what we did is that we did this digitally and that meant that if a plane shouts, if I have a disturbing signal, that means we could recognize them and point them out like nanoseconds, of course, because yep. they shouted to 100 radar stations, three pricked them up, three lines, tch, 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 yeah, you got you it. Yep. So it was like it's toast. And that was just completely revolutionary. And the scary thing for me was partly... I don't like military service at all. I don't like military. I don't like weapons. I don't like anything like that at all. Um, And the only reason actually I did it was number one, curiosity, because I'm an absurdly curious person. And number two, because it was defense. So like I felt, okay, I'm okay with building radar systems that Mm -hmm. make it harder for somebody to invade a country with airplanes. That feels okay. But I wouldn't want to build it for somebody that can invade another country. But, But actually now looking back, I'm actually very, very happy I did military service. And it's one of those things. Because the first three months, sure, I like ran around in, you know, trenches and like dug stuff and had tents and, but it was like camping with other people. And no. it's kind of fine. It was okay. It was you have people shout at you for stupid reasons, but it was actually kind of okay. I kind of, kind of enjoyed all parts about except people shouting stupid stuff at you. But then as soon as those three months were over for me and my, my colleague, we just sat in a, an office together, just the two of us and coded between eight in the morning and eight in the evening. No, so like it was amazing we just sat there and worked and coded so like we actually had a very nice time the strange thing that happened for me where my parents asked me could you please quote-unquote program the vhr and they couldn't do it because it was so quote-unquote technical and i could do it i was in this situation but i felt extremely empowered that i could probably solve any problem because i was around really really smart people like my parents and my brothers and then that was attenuated by the fact that when i went to the military service like the colonel we had the like all of the people around me were super, super intelligent, and they came around like once every month to the office. And because we could code, we could show really awesome stuff. But now we could show it with real life, like stuff. Instead of like it's the video cassette player in my house, which is like, and my parents were like happier that I did. Suddenly we're talking about like a multi-million dollar radar station that suddenly we were able to do something that no human could do, and that felt like, for me, it was extremely empowering. But to a degree, which I think was, I'm really happy that I didn't turn into a complete asshole. Or maybe I am, but I didn't think I turned into a great asshole. I'm very happy I had like very nice people around me that helped ground me. Like three brothers that constantly told me that I was, a, I was absolutely nobody. That was very useful. <laughs> so what brothers tend to do, I guess. Yes, exactly. That's what In the, after the
1: military service, where right, did the uh, this curiosity bring you to, did you directly fund
0: a company or did you... Uh, yeah, so what happened was I started uni right after that and I did computer science. So I was really obsessed about how things work. And that's actually people. I still find it most fascinating what goes on in someone else's mind. So like, I think that the way I put it in, in my words, which I think are not ideal because it's easy to, to be ambiguous about it, is that what, like, what makes you work? I think that what's fascinating, what drives you? Like, why would you come to a meeting? Why would you say what you just said? Mm-hmm. Why would you try to learn? Why would you do this and that? So I like, I was super fascinated about that already from, from high school and in the military service, because I was building these radar stations simulations, there was a ton of math and university math. And of course, like massive, a really complex math, right? Yep. So I just had to crunch university books and try to figure out stuff um, w- to solve the problems. Like I just, you know, borrowed books from the library or got from friends and just read them and tried to like figure out how to code the system. Uh, but then what happened was that when I was looking at what I was going to do in uni, I just felt maybe the easiest way to understand people is actually to simulate them, which was and absurdly absurd <laughs> things to say 1999. But it just felt like I couldn't rule out other ways because I looked at like medicine. I felt like this is going to be about bodies. Yeah. I looked at psychology. It's going to be about judging people. I think that that's changed now. Biochemistry, it feels like still very far down the component list. Anthropology, it feels like it's studying it in a very vast behavior. And if you take, for example, um, mathematics, f- physics, physics, chemistry, um computer science what's interesting is like if you're in physics you actually don't get to build that many things like you're fairly far away from actually trying you read a lot you read something and you get to maybe see an experiment but you're not tinkering in chemistry you get to tinker a bit in mathematics, you actually get to tinker quite a lot because like you 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 write out the stuff and you try you to know. see what happens if you make it easier. In, in computer science, you tinker tons, right? Like you build a little thing, it works, and you're like, it works. And what's funny is in, in computer science is like, sometimes you can build something, but you don't understand it, which is very, very different from, you know, like pure mathematics. It's very hard to figure out something if you don't actually understand it. Uh, but it was so fascinating. So I was like, within the environment, where I was able to tinker and play with the world around me on screens, naturally, mostly, but I also just like at any other like higher degree, like I progressed all the time because I learned new tricks and new theories and new tools. So it was a very good environment for me to like test stuff and learn stuff and figure shit out. Like the first summer was coming up and I was thinking, I do not want to stand working at like the retail store and, no, and yeah. sell groceries or I want to pick strawberries, which if you think about it, what you have done after one year at university, you don't know anything. No, you don't. You, like you're, you're kind of like a bad calculator. You 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 actually have less knowledge than all of your friends that did something applied. So I was just thinking, I do not want to do that. Uh, so I was thinking, and I think that for me it was also like an obsession about curiosity and like moving forward and progress. So I was thinking like, what what do I do? And then I I was just throwing out fishing nets all the time. My oldest brother is a cryptography professor. And he said, like, why don't you work with cryptography? Because you're it feels like you're very good at it. I have no idea why that was his conclusion. That I was good at it. Uh, but like, I felt like maybe, maybe I am, I don't know. Uh, so he said, like, I have a friend who is the chief science officer at a company in Paris. So I was like, wow, I work in Paris, that would be cool. And then my brother introduced me to this guy, David Nakash. Um, and David, uh, uh, like he, we had this phone call where he was essentially came to the call and said, Marcus, my oldest brother, said you are amazing at uh, cryptography. That is really great to hear. Uh, do you know AES? AES is that it was a new advanced encryption standard, which was yeah. brand new. And of course, I had no idea what it was. Remember now that I was the guy who c- coded video, like VCRs. If your parents ask you, can you code the VCR? You just said yes. Like, yeah. you don't say, I don't know, because then you're not going to, to try. So I just said, yeah. He said, that's amazing. Uh, French universities are so behind. It's amazing that you learn. And then he said, and uh, I understand from markers that you're an hacker. Like, ah. I can code. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're no humble here. You're a very good. Anchor, I understand from your brother. And I was like, yeah, oh yeah, maybe. Do you know assembler? And I do a bit of assembler. It's right. like very kind of basic hardware coding. And I was like, yeah. Do you know A11 assembler? I had no idea what A like one of the languages. I was like, yes, of course. It was like amazing again. French universities, I don't understand what they're doing. You're just making a list in the background paper on what to learn. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. So what happened was he offered me this job and I was going to go to Paris that summer and code and new credit cards to make sure that credit cards could be cracked. Yep. This is like February, March. And I was like, holy crap, now I have to understand both this new AES and A11S. Yep. And the great thing with the university is like you actually, even if you study and everything, you actually have quite a lot of free time. Like you can spend your hours doing everything you want. Yep. So like if you want to study this or that, that's actually possible you still have to probably do something to kind of you know massage your brain forward because otherwise you won't be able to do stuff for later um but so i just spent a lot of time uh, spare time on cryptography and a11 11, 11 assembler came down to paris build this thing for them and it was amazing did you manage to learn everything? Yes, yes, yes. It worked amazingly. I actually built the whole system in uh, mm-hmm. roughly six weeks. Uh, and it like, no one ever did it before. So it was really funny. And then one day I go to the, like this is one of the first days, I go to the Metro and the machine just yep. eats my ticket. I can't like, get in. And it like I had done it before, but now it's just like constantly eating my ticket. And there was this girl came up from nowhere and it was, she was like, I can help you if you want. And I was like, Thank you very much. And then like we went in and this one tube station, right? So you have to get on the same tube. So we got on the same tube, we started talking. And then suddenly she just interrupts herself and goes from French and says, like, in Swedish, Are you Swedish? And I was like, Yes. And I was like, Yeah, okay, your French is good, but it's not that good. So I was like, Oh shit, you're Swedish. It was like amazing. So we started talking. And then she said, I'm actually leaving tomorrow back yep. to Sweden. If you want, you can have my apartment during the summer. Because I'm going home to Stockholm for the summer. And I yep. like it would be great. Like if you want a sublet, like you can you can pay me. And I was like oh my God, this is crazy, right? And I got to Subler at her apartment in like Central Paris for almost nothing, of course, it was a tiny apartment. But for me, I went from like suddenly living in my own apartment in Central Paris and working for a real company, doing something real, which again, wasn't great for my like hybris here. This is a really, really <laughs> bad situation. And so essentially what happened is I came to work and this is a department of... Uh, 10 roughly people that all did polytechnique and abstract mathematics. Everybody's like hyper intelligent, but they're all extremely impractical people. They're all like pure mathematicians. And I was the only person who'd ever coded anything at all. Because that meant that that I got this great relationship with these like super intelligent people that were like, you know, 10 to 30 years older than I was. Uh, And then like I was solving a problem that they had done mathematically, but now I need to program it. So essentially what happened is I was just coding all day, all night. And then I came to them and said, I have this thing that I'm trying to figure out like, if you mask this with XOR, and it was like, no, 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 XOR is proven that the problem is this happens then the electrical currents will be to i that will be readable by a foreign attacker. I was like, oh my God, why? And they explained it to me. So like they asked me stuff, which about like Microsoft Word and how to restart computers. And I asked them about stuff that was applied to my work. And they, you know, honestly respected me and, and like gave me a good answers back. So we had an, I had an amazing time and built the system and it worked. And then I did other st- stuff for them during the whole summer. And that like, so then after that, I came back. To Sweden, continued to like my education, and then I like immediately realized I'm gonna do this again. Like I'm not not there obviously, but I'm gonna yeah. do another thing. So the next summer I applied to a company in London that did arts exhibitions, uh, but using a lot of computer, uh, yeah, graphics and a lot of computer stuff. And this is like '99, so it's like we're talking about very low amount of computer stuff. Mm-hmm. But they had like like super cool internet uh, kind of graphic web pages that was crazy. And it, back in the time, they were like one of the craziest studios in the world. Um, and uh, they asked me, yeah, sure. Do you know uh, J2ME, like the new Java enterprise I standard? Just saying, I, yes. yes, of course I know that. That's <laughs> no real. I <I'd> like, I'll <laughs> configure it. Uh, of course, I had to study a lot to figure it out. And then I came to them and I just built stuff for them. And because it was London, the salary was like outrageous. No, I mean, any student is outrageous. Exactly. Right? If you just get paid, it's outrageous. Yeah. Exactly. So like, it was crazy that I got some London salaries. But what I didn't understand, I also got London costs. Uh, so it was like a very, very interesting summer. Uh, and I just met a girl in the spring before or in the spring just before I went. Um and realized that like we wanted to continue dating, so like w- pitched that why don't you join me? So we we co-shared yeah. and lived in a tiny apartment in a tiny bed. Anyways, spent that summer building stuff. And again, the funny thing was like at Jean Plus, the French company, uh, it was a very defined problem. It was like this is a real problem for real life for credit cards that are not going to be hacked. Um, and in pl- implementing the standard at this arts company, I was part of setting the opportunities because like. Like, it's kind of when you get a new tool or a new, new, new color to paint with a, a toolbox. I came in and they started just like, can you please do this? That's amazing. And then after a couple of days, they were like, could you, could you do this? And I was like, yes. Wait, 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 what can you do? And I started like saying, well, what is the thing we want to solve? And then they started realizing that with new tools come new opportunities. Yep. So we started this amazing dialogue where they said, I'm thinking about this abstract thing. Could you come up with a cool way we could think about that? Yeah. And that was the first time suddenly my work shifted from being part of defining the problem and not only the solution. Uh, there were many, many, many interesting incidents uh, working with grown-ups in London in the heyday of ninety-nine, One of my best episodes ever was that I walked to office, the office every day, reading a book because I was like there was two switches, like two changes in the subway and like buses were complicated. So I literally just walked out of our apartment, had a fiction book, and was reading, walking that mm-hmm. reading and walking with that book all the way to the office, came to the office. You didn't bump into any people? On the street. No, the thing is like, you actually kind of have a peripheral kind of sphere. You kind of see even though you're reading it. But then I came to the office and I took an espresso. And after that, I took a fluoride. So like for my teeth, because I just had an espresso. But the funny thing that uh, what happened was after roughly seven, eight days was that one of my colleagues sat down next to me and he said, so, so Hampus, I, I just want to say that um, um, it's completely fine that you're taking them. But you can't offer it to anybody else in the office during work hours. And I was like, "Sorry, sorry, what? I don't understand it." So you can't offer it to anybody else. I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about. I was like, "No, I'm like offering what?" Um, in the morning. Um, you know what I mean. I was like, "No, I'm not following at all. I'm sorry, I don't understand at all, Ed." Okay. Um, but and I was like, "So what? Can you just describe?" And it, and then he was like, this guy's so dumb, right? So he's suddenly like, you are offering um, narcotics to your colleagues in the office. And it's like, it's fine, you're taking it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm offering narcotics to my colleagues? What are you talking about? In the morning, I was like, what do you think I'm doing? And then he's like, you know, super blunt looking at me. He he's like, it's fine that you're taking speed, yeah. but you can't give it to your colleagues during work hours. Yeah. I was like, speed? Like LSD? He was like, yes. Wh- what? What? I was like, I'm and I explained to him, like, I take I have a cup of coffee because I'm kind of, you know, you know, walk to the office. I'm kind of bored by I'm being introverted reading a book and I'm very extroverted, so I think it's fun to talk to my colleagues. And of course the coffee it like speeds me up a lot, right? Yeah. And then I take a fluoride for my teeth. Uh, fluoride? What's the fluoride? I was like, you know, for my teeth. It's like I've never seen it. And I showed them the like the like the medical, like I was like, this is it. And I was like, oh, okay, then it's it's fine. I'm sorry, I'm fine. I was like, what, what was that? do you think I, I eat speed in the morning? <laughs> it was like, you are very intense. You're very intense in the morning. I was like, okay, thanks. I don't know if that's a compliment. It was like, it is a compliment, definitely. It's like, it feels but better now knowing it's unmedicated. I was like, okay, thanks. I was like, but it was such an interesting thing. Venturing again into grown-up land, we're thinking, so other people would almost be okay. I mean, they would be okay if I would take speed yeah. while working, and they would almost be okay that I give it to other people in the office. And it was like, again... But not during working hours. Not during working hours, obviously, exactly. That was like the limit. Uh... But it was so funny because again, I think it changed my perspective of like what things are, because I think that I think that we all create these boundaries in our heads, thinking, you know, I can solve the problem that someone else defines for me, Uh, and then I can only work with this because this is my background. And then that cracked through with me with the military service when it's like, okay, 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 I can solve problems that I don't think I can solve. Interesting. And then suddenly I moved to the next level, which was like, whoa, 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 I can be part of defining the problem when you realize
1: those things. Is it a one-time event, or do you need? Several occasions of it happening for the.
0: I think the it's shift like. To... I think it's like some of these things are very much um like some of them are gradients that like like it's one of those things where like you repeatedly do it and nobody hits you kind of thing that like okay whoa whoa whoa, whoa okay yeah. I can do it, it again it's, it's fine. Not the figuratively hand on the stove, but just the, the no moment. exactly. But some of these occasions were like hand on the stone level, yeah. where it's like you like like very eye opening, and I think that that moment where like. I think at a couple of those occasions, I think the same thing as in Paris where like when I asked, like I remember one occasion when I was like asking one of my French colleagues to help me out and he was not amazing in English and my French was not good at all in, in mathematics. Like I can speak French, yeah. uh, not now, but then. But like if you go and talk about like doing derivatives or anything, like I have no clue what they are suddenly called no. um, in French. So like very, very quickly in this conversation, he was like, just stop. And then yeah. we went to Whiteboard and we just started writing math. And that is also suddenly something that changed my mind because I remember that occasion and realizing that he is like 15 years old than I am. He's an absolute genius. We cannot talk, like I can't figure out a way to communicate with him in professional. It doesn't really work, uh, like language barrier-wise. But suddenly when we're on a whiteboard, we're speaking the exact same language. We I just drew up the problem like on the whiteboard and he was like, you know, showing that this is what happens and this going on. And I was like, no, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, 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 wait. The problem is this and I underline like this. And of course, all the normal stuff we could speak about in French. I was like, no, but like, this is the part that I'm really afraid that it would be, be um, like seen by, by the, you know, the hacker. Or yeah. this is the thing that if we round it off, this thing happens. And like, we went back and forth and like, but constantly like writing slash drawing in math. And what's so funny about whiteboards as well is that we all know that phenomenon where you're walking, you're writing on a whiteboard, but you're standing too close to it. So suddenly you're misspelling everything. And the reason yeah. is that when you're standing close to whiteboard drawing, like your brain, <laughs> your brain stops interpreting it as text and start interpreting as pictures because they're too big for your brain to see as or too close so like you don't actually see the letters you're mm-hmm. starting seeing uh, like swirls and like you know half circles and stuff and then your brain the, the part of it it's not your language center processing it it's, it's like your it's your pictorial center and what happens is though so that's why like i have teachers like that are smart and can spell and everything suddenly misspell stuff on the whiteboard because they don't actually their brain stop processing a text i remember that occasion where i realized that this was a mode of my brain and we both played this kind of squash badminton game together and like depending on where we were on court back and forth Mm. we could help each other see different things and like i remember that occasion it was like really stepping out to another world i remember like oh my god this person that i so respect that is such a smart person like because we're like because essentially i could change my visual position i could see things that he couldn't and vice versa but i think i moved from like I can be part of trying to solve someone else's problem. To I can help. I can actually, if somebody gives me a problem, I can probably solve it on my own. Nope. To hey, I can probably talk to them about the solution uh, or and talk to them about the problem. Sorry. Um. So to like help to kind of understand. And suddenly, whoa, 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 whoa! I can define the problem. I can define the solution. And then suddenly, at finally, this company in London, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Given the fact that I understand how to solve this, I can help you redefine what to solve. And that was huge for me because then I realized, because that essentially is what a startup does, right? Like you iterate what the solution is, but you also iterate what the problem is. And before that in London, I actually think I've never thought myself in age wise, skill wise or anything that like I can define what to solve. Mm -hmm. And that opened up everything for me. Like it really changed everything. And I think what the funny thing there would happen was that suddenly, um, like when I came back I was really obsessed about the idea of like And I had one of my friends visited me in London and I was talking about my uh, what I did for work and he was like we should start a company doing this this is amazing yeah. the water around us this is ninety-nine. quote unquote startups raised money for absolutely nothing doing absolutely yeah. ridiculous shit uh, and of course a lot of it now is like you know normal infrastructure like selling stuff online but they did it in such a kind of such a not only stupid way in how they solved it, because of course the technology was nascent, but also they they try to solve problems that weren't at all problems, which of course, because they got new tools, they could, yeah. you know, how do you buy clothes online and like have virtual bodies, which now feels maybe okay, but back then it was ludicrous. Ludicrous in a good way, because like, hey, let, let's try it. But what was what's so interesting about it for me was that suddenly we got in this mindset where we could work with what our craft is, what we love, With people around us that we love and enjoy working with, and we don't have to work for "quote unquote" the man. Like our friends started working for the Ericsson's and whatever the Astrazeneca's around us, and the Siemens around us, and then suddenly we're saying, "Why don't we do these like interactive arts exhibitions kind of thing?" Because obviously we're getting paid to do that. Again, this is 1999, so we didn't understand that you actually didn't get paid for that. (laughs) That we were in a very strange bubble. So we started a company, uh, and it was we were six friends, and before you graduated or yeah, it was during my studies um uh, And what happened then? It was actually it actually completely maimed my uh, computer vision degree. I got like a really shitty degree in computer vision uh, because I was coding all day, working all day with the company, and all the weekends. Yeah, like, everything.
1: You got a bad degree in computer vision, but you were working on a computer vision project.
0: Yeah, all that. Like, but the funny thing about this computer vision degree, which is so so great about it, is that the computer vision professor we had uh, end up starting a lot of companies, and he's an amazing person. But it was so funny because many many years later. Uh, we end up being on a, on a panel or a discussion of something and we were talking about entrepreneurship. And then uh, somebody asked me like, so like this guy, Carl, he was doing it, he was a professor at the uni, how do you do it then? Talked about that and how do you do it as a student? And I explained, and I said, of course, what happened was like, you just had to prioritize. Like, should I crunch this exam and learn this thing and go to these lectures or laboratories things? Or should I just do the mandatory stuff and then like work as no. much as I can to solve the client's issues that I have right now? And then I said, so that means I had to like, you know you know, cut some corners with some classes. And then, like, he, my, prof- like the prof- my old professor was, like, laughing and said, yeah, so I hope you didn't skip my class or anything. And I said, well, Carl, I actually did. I'm really sorry, but I did. And that was one of the reasons I got, like, an, only an accepted degree. Yeah. And he's just, like, completely, like, like, you know, completely serious. Like, you should have told me. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And he said, no, no, not, not that way. If you would have told me that you were building a company, I would have given you that A. Like, I would have given the best grade ever. Because the fact that you did this during that little time, I mean, I have so much empathy yeah. for how hard it is to build a company. You just told me. And I was like, let's come to my office. You can talk to me about the subject. You don't have to write anything. Just come to me. And I think you would have mastered it. And we would have a dialogue about it. And I would just like skip the classes. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> there were many times in my life, again and again, when I realized that the authority that you think is the super authority for like, which is like when you're a kid, it's the quote unquote grown up. But then when you're like 19, it's the whatever, the professor or the person at the company or whatever. You don't realize that they put their pants on one at a time. They're worried about their kids coming home at nope. night, and or they are trying to figure out how to lose weight. They're just like you. It was really one of those things where it kind of dawned on me that I always thought that it was this person. I was always like, no. Nope. So it's not grownups. It's this person is like has a child's mind. And then like the next person I worked with, okay, this person respects people independently, but not all people. And like step by step by step. And still today, I still have this thing whenever I meet like a person that I truly respect. Like I always get, like I sound super horrible to say, but I also get fairly disappointed. Like I meet them and they're just normal people. And I think that's one of the things that we just put people on pedestals. And I mean, some people are amazing, obviously. uh, But it's so funny because we don't really, we like look at all the aspects of that person. (laughs) You're going to find that it has its peaks, which is like, this person is so good. But what we all think is that what we were stupidly doing wrong is we're taking all these people and then we sum them up as one thing. And we think that is the goal. But we don't realize, whoa, 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 whoa. None, this is nobody. Nobody has peaks all over. In our minds, we only sample the peaks from other people. And then the picture we build of who we should be are the sum of all the peaks of all other people. Instead of thinking, wait, 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 wait. This person is not perfect. But it's like everything around you is made by other people. Like it's really, really hard to get that into your mind. Like you look at stuff and you think that they're fixed and done and perfect. Everything is an invention by someone else. Nope. Somebody like you who woke up this morning slightly irritated and felt fairly tired, got a cup of coffee, slightly too early, didn't get your Andrew Huberman morning light, uh, did, forgot to charge your phone, blah, 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 blah. And you feel like, why would you be able to do anything? And then suddenly you realize, well, the person who invented light was also kind of like this. And that's extremely empowering in a sense. And I think today, I think that people are saying, you know, follow your passions and, uh, or like start a company and do something. And the problem is like, I think most people, including myself, like, I'm not sure what I'm passionate about. Like if somebody says, oh, when you started a company, what was the idea? What was the vision? What we you passionate about? I was like, the main passion we started was that we wanted to work together. That was the main passion. We, want, we didn't want to work for the man. So the first thing we did, two people did, um, special effects for uh, the carnival movie in the university city we were. Uh, three of us did uh, this uh, big arts exhibition in Stockholm that we got paid to do and then two of us did uh, um, um, like um, software development for another for a startup mm-hmm. and tried to help them out and together we just pulled the money and like we were just continued working while we are doing university studies but then this like beast kind of grew and did other things and other things and other things and then completely by chance Sony and Ericsson merged and, or like acquired each other, whatever you want to say, and created this new entity called Sony Ericsson that made mobile phones. And the Japanese part wanted to build these PlayStation phones. Uh, And of course, in Japanese phones at the time, the hardware was extremely expensive. So like they could just build amazing whatever they wanted. Whereas phones in all the rest of the world were these like handheld microwave ovens, like really shitty text screens, uh, because the price was completely different here than in Japan. So there was immediately like this confusion within Sony Ericsson that the Swedish part thought we have a microwave oven. And the Japanese part thought, yeah, we have a you know, PlayStation, yeah. so let's go build this thing. And then what happened was that, the, well, the, the phone was going to come out to market as the oven price tag, of course, because it's going to be sold in Europe. And that, that rift suddenly happened. And then one of our friends completely randomly from high school happened to work on that project within the era. And then he asked us, hey, could you maybe help us out? And we just didn't want to do it. We had worked with mobile phones back in 99 doing computer games as one of these, like, quote unquote, '99 startups. Just felt super stupid. Yep. But we it was kind of interesting challenge. We were curious. We loved having a crack at problems. So we bought one of the first open phones, well, like, which was called Symbian. So kind of one of those phones you could build an app for, which we built kind of a quote unquote app that looked like a UI. It looked like a whole like menu system you can draw around and everything. And we just optimized the shit out of it by like taking advantage of how we understood the screen worked and hardware and everything and then showed it to them a couple of days later. And they just like, their mouth just fell open and they asked us like, whoa, 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 can we license this? Can we work with you? How can you solve this? And we kind of, we didn't want to do it. So we just said the highest, craziest price we could think about, which at that time was 50,000 euros, uh, because that was the, the biggest we got paid for any project before. No. Uh, and they were just like, sure. Do you mean per phone model family? And we were like, yeah. yes, per <laughs> phone model family, I guess. Right. And they were like, that's great. Would you help us with integration and consultancy? We were like, yes. And they said, we'll yeah, get back to you and draft an agreement. And they came back to us and suddenly realized this is going to pay us like half a million euros. And of course, not overnight, like it's going to take a lot of work. And and this thing grew like from step to step to step to just being a behemoth and bigger. Like we were 180 people with offices in Taipei and Tokyo and Seoul and Chicago and San Francisco and Gothenburg and Malmo. And like, we were like, it was suddenly a big organism that builds stuff. And what was the business plan? Well, the original business plan was don't work for the man. I think that the problem is that this, prophecy way of thinking that we're going to find our purpose in life we're going to find our ikigai like what we get you know energy from what we're good at yeah. and what we get paid to do is that, that is not true and i think that like my most famous uh the most famous i think that uh like analogy for this is the the sorting hat in harry potter and the first day um they put this hat on you and this hat tells you if you're one of the four houses and one house is brave one house is uh like one house is very like gentle and nice uh, and one house is very like smart and thoughtful and wise and one house is uh, like what i would say like chaotic neutral so they they're they're thinking egoistically about how to solve problems for the world
1: i think the the official trade is uh cunning
0: cunning exactly cunning Mm -hmm. that's thank (laughs) you very much what i find so fascinating is like you're somebody puts this hat on your head and this hat tells you you are wise you will be with the wise people, the Ravenclaws, and you will be in their tower and work with all the Ravenclaws and you'll hang out with all the wise people. And I think that what happens is that when we go to uni uh, or anywhere else, else in life and they put you, you you do computer science, you come in and the first weeks you hang around and you eat mud and drink beers and whatever, do some maths maybe. And then, you know that you are chosen to do computer science because you're here and everyone around you does computer science. Yep. So the, what are you talking about? Computer science, of course, because that's what you all have in common. You're not talking about interest rates because whoa, those are the stupid economists that do that, right? So you become a claw. And I think that what, what, what is the thing that people don't understand is like, if we put a magic hat on people and told them they were brave, they would become brave. Especially if you gather them around people who also were told they were brave. But the problem is like, again, this is it bottom up or top down The thing with the sorting hat, it's top down. It's a sensei. It's the Ayaska moment that somebody tells you you will build bridges of steel. And the problem is like life doesn't actually act that way. It's a bottom up life. So every moment you're getting like a small signal that maybe I'm a Ravenclaw. Mm -hmm. And the problem is now the question you have to ask yourself is like, do you want to actually remove the illusion and tell yourself, nobody knows if I'm a Ravenclaw, including myself. That is the problem of that is that now you have too many opportunities. Maybe you should become an architect. Maybe you should become a lawyer. Maybe you should become a programmer. Or you just say, well, my sensei said I would build bridges, so I'm going to build bridges. And the problem is like, I think we all wish that we got that thing. We all wish that somebody just told us. At the same time, part of us wishes to have complete degrees of freedom. And I think that's one of the big dichotomies of life, which I think that it happens to people during their like 18 to 25 year olds. First, it happens what they should do as education. Then it happens to them where they should work. And what happens, of course, is that people tend to tread the safe path. And sometimes the safe path is you do, you do physics, you master it, you're really great at it. Then you go to McKinsey because that's where all of your smart friends went and so on and so forth. And then 10 years later, that's when you wake up and said, what do I want? And and you never actually try to think for yourself. And because it's painful. And of course, what do we do? We try to avoid pain. So if somebody creates a well-paved path in front of us and say, you're a Ravenclaw, you will go, yeah, thanks a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's very dumb.
1: So what was your your bottom up signal then to to, yeah, quit, so the, to quit the founders and go to to the more investing side
0: yeah so what happened for me was that i think that as all things in life there were raving claw hats all along um so i think what happened was suddenly one day when we're building this company and we were like a large like this 180 people entity um one day then out of nowhere then blackberry which was the biggest smartphone manufacturer in the day called us in 2010 and said that they want to acquire the company uh, yeah. and this was like hey you're a Ravenclaw. They just put the hat on our head. It's like, we want to acquire you. you. Should You should be BlackBerry. And we flew over, met them in like outside Toronto where the headquarters is and completely amazing people. Like you come in and like, oh my God, these Ravenclaw people are so amazing. They're so mind blowing. They're so great. Maybe I want to be a Ravenclaw. And like like the the, the CEO and co-founder of, uh, of BlackBerry is like one of the more intelligent people I've met in a very long time. Like he's an extraordinary person. And like the way, the eloquence, the depth, the understanding of both market and technology and everything It was just mind blowing. And like being in the presence of those people, I just felt like, whoa. And then he said, we want to acquire you. We want to pay $150 million and we want you to wear like Blackberry badges. And it just felt completely unreal. it's kind of like, you know, Harry Potter gets to Hogwarts, it's like, am I a magician? Like, I don't know, I understand, right? and so and we thought that they're just going to license the software and everything like as everyone else did they always said we want to acquire you but then like oh it's so complicated um but then like blackberry went ahead with it and they offered us a deal and and wanted to buy us and i think the biggest thing for us was not getting any cash it was two things that really made the difference one is that as we grew, the six founders, we just had different ambitions and, and interests. So some of us was like, I just essentially want to kind of spend my life and like, you know, build my house that I really like. And of course I'm working at this company. Hey, but that's my big passion. And no. some of us was like, I really understand the value chain of mobile phones and understand how, what makes the whole system tick. And some of us was like, I want to design something completely new within mobile or humor, user experience or something. And those drives were not very aligned with building and scaling as company. So one of the big rifts were like the the motivation between us, like both on how many hours we put in, but also like our you know horizons and everything was completely different. So one of the big challenges were that when we had strategy conversations, we had one strategy conversation, which was with the founders and one which was with the management team. And with the management team, I loved, like then we were like building in like a massive empire and trying to figure shit out. But with the founders, like the conversation could be like, I want to move to Iceland. And it's like, okay, should we start an Icelandic office? But like the, it was it was also very good because of course in the founder forum, there was a discussion about life. Whereas in the company, we were in this bubble of like building an empire. But I think it was very, very hard to square that the well. So suddenly if somebody says, hey, why did not you just split it apart? We essentially, you know, rip out all the, like the body. We take all these cells, we put them in the new body. And now you can like, you can put the cells anywhere. Like if you want to be in the arm, you want to be in the head, you want to be in the foot. You don't want to be in here at all. It's fine. Like you're individuals, you're not like collective anymore. Yeah. Um, and that felt like whoa, what a relief strategically and life-wise. Thank you so much for listening to this
1: episode. If you want to meet Hampus together with his fund Pale Blue Dot, he is organizing a climate event here in Malmo in Sweden in early September called the Drop. Additionally, he is also a speaker at the Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen just a week after their own event. If you want to hear more interviews, subscribe to Deep Tech Stories, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or follow me on Twitter. You'll be hearing back from me soon with the second part of this interview, where we go into the details of Humbus then actually became a VC, and what is important at what funding stage of a startup.